So this all sort of goes to the heart of what I'm saying, because I think that like, it's not a coincidence that the stuff that really matters to us to do in life is a bit uncomfortable. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I'm so happy you're here this week. Before we get into today's show, just a simple reminder, if you're enjoying the show and our guest, I would love if you headed, headed over to Apple Podcasts and left a review, as it really does help bring fantastic guests like today's guest, Oliver Berkman. So who is Oliver? Well, for the better part of 14 years, Oliver wrote a column in The Guardian from 2006 to 2012. He wrote a popular weekly column on psychology called This Column Will Change Your Life. And throughout the years, it did just that. Many people wrote in saying how much impact his, our, his weekly column had on their lives. Oliver is also a three-time author. In 2011, he wrote the book Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. In 2012, he wrote the book Antidote. Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And the latest book in 2021 is 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. We spend a lot of our time talking about his latest book, 4,000 Weeks, which really represents how many weeks we have to live. He uses 80 as the benchmark, and he explains why he chose that number. And I have to say, this book is amazing. I really, really enjoyed this book. I listened to both the audio version and read the physical copy, and it really spoke to me. People such as Adam Grant, who is the author of several books, uh, including his latest one, Think Again, has said this about the book. The most important book ever written about time management. Krista Tippett said, it invites nothing less than a new relationship with time and with life itself. So those are great statements, great reviews of this book. And in today's conversation, we dive into our relationship with time and how we're constantly trying to control our time, yet it's merely impossible to control that time. And how we're consistently distracting ourselves from the important things in our lives by focusing our time on things that don't really matter. Oliver also talks about the rock, pebble, and sand analogy brought by Stephen Covey and talks about how perhaps this is a little misleading and puts his own spin on that analogy. We spend a lot of our time really talking about time, money, and happiness, and if at all, do these link together? And Oliver really believes in this idea of why focusing on time management and efficiency isn't the answer and how that actually, to what I said earlier, is just really distracting us from doing the hard things, which are focusing on things that really matter. Oliver also shares a great perspective on why taking a hike for no other reason than just taking the hike is an activity well worth doing. 
I really encourage you to get a copy of Oliver's book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. You can also check him out at oliverberkman.com. I'll include that in the show notes as I really, really feel like this book comes at a great time and we all can get some sort of perspective based on how we're experiencing our life where we are now. This is not a self-help book that's going to tell you how to do things. And if you do them perfectly like this, you'll find happiness. Because as Oliver said, life just doesn't work that way. I feel like Oliver has so much compassion and understanding that life is messy. It's hard. We never gain control over time. And he does a wonderful job explaining that through his book. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Oliver Berkman. Oliver, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. And before we start, I was reading your newest book that we're definitely going to be talking about, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And, you know, some people that I've looked up to have said some very insightful and impactful comments about the book. And I want to start with Adam Grant, who just came up with Think Again. And um, he said, the most important book ever written about time management and Krista Tippett, who, um, someone who I've been following for a number of years, it invites nothing less than a new relationship with time and with life itself. So really good uh, comments from these people, Oliver. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm obviously really grateful for those, uh, for those endorsement quotes. They mean a lot and make a difference, yeah. Yeah. So the title of the book, I want to go to the title first of all. Um, Throughout the book, you talk about this concept of constructing or creating a meaningful life by embracing what you call or allude to often is finitude. Mm-hmm. So my first question, it's a two-part question. The first one is, can you explain finitude and why that was of important to you? And then now that you've written the book, looking back, what was the significance or meaning that this book had on, on your life? Yeah, great questions. I mean, so the title 4,000 Weeks refers to very roughly um, an 80-year lifespan. Actually, if you live to be 80, you'll have had uh, a few more than 4,000 weeks, but I'm I'm rounding to make a, a good number in the title. Uh, but I think even more important than the exact figure, yeah, is that I think what that, what expressing it in weeks draws attention to is just like, it's finite. Mm-hmm. And finitude is just a word meaning the state of being finite it's uh, it's the experience of, of being finite both in terms of the amount of time that we have and also in terms of the amount of control that we get over that time and the amount the degree to which we can predict or plan for our futures and and sort of guarantee that things will turn out the way we the way we want them to turn out so it's really a book about what happens to how we think about time management and building a meaningful life when you take that into account, when you stop, and we could discuss, I think a lot of sort of bad productivity advice encourages us to avoid this uncomfortable truth. And I was sort of exploring what happens if you if you um, confront it. You know, the interesting thing about the book and its role for me, I mean, clearly writing is my is one of the things that that strikes me as a meaningful thing to do. I feel like uh, a skill that I have is not to sort of come up with brand new philosophies at all, but to maybe synthesize and communicate mm-hmm. things that are out there and that have been there around for centuries in ways that um, make sense and reach people where they are today. And I think whatever your particular thing that you can do is, 
uh, stretching yourself to do that is is sort of intrinsically uh, satisfying. The other honest truth about all the stuff I write about really is that it's kind of self-therapy in a way as well. So um, I am among the people I am telling to they should consider a different attitude to uh, <laughs> to time and and so I found actually with this book very interestingly I almost sort of had to like in order to write it I kind of had to become a bit better at confronting this stuff because you know otherwise I'd have just been like faking it um, mm. so I had to sort of step into practicing what I preach uh, a little bit more as well. It's interesting you say that because something I did observe as reading the book and I did listen to the audio version as well is I don't feel like you're preaching your message versus you're, you're on this journey experiencing with us as the reader. And something that I feel is really, I guess, sets it apart from the time management industry. That's very much do this, do this. I did this. You'll be happy. So I really felt, um, your authenticity as you as you wrote this book, and I think that, that that means a lot when we're reading such, in essence, deep books that we're questioning how we're spending our time in our life. <laughs> you do it with the, yeah. some compassion. Yeah, well, I'm grateful to hear that. I'm glad to hear it because it is my it is my goal. I mean, there are tips and techniques, especially mm. toward the back of the book. I didn't want to leave that out completely, but I mean, I I uh, like I don't want to read books from people who claim that they have their life in perfect working order. <laughs> um, and indeed, in this case of this book, it would be especially um, bogus because it's sort of about how, at least for some definitions of perfect working order, like we can't ever get mm -hmm. our lives into perfect working order if that means total control and mastery of, of time. So even more than in other contexts, uh, if I had claimed that this was, you know, here's my perfect life and now I'm going to give you the opportunity to emulate it, it would have uh, rung pretty hollow. And I find, yeah, I mean, I'm only, it's only early days for the book, but I'm, people do really connect to that. I feel like people like to not be um, condescended to about mm. this deep stuff. Like, you know, we're all just struggling through as best we can. Yeah. It's a journey of life that we just are trying to figure out. And <laughs> on a personal side, I, um, for years, I struggled with the busyness of my life. I, I feel like I was to use some knowledge and words that you talked about. Uh, I was constantly being distracted and I know that's not your word distracted, but the meaning you attached to the book really resonated with me because over the years, I always packed my schedule with so many things to do, exercising, running marathons, Ironmans, being busy from morning to night. And over the last number of years, I've started to, look for question myself and reflection mm -hmm. on why am I doing this? And I've had some significant people who've helped. Yeah. Just help me facilitate these questions. But I, I, I think I was lacking what your book gave is this concept on distractions. And again, it's a simple word, but the way you frame it, and that's what I want to get into this question is, is how distractions impact our time. And there's a quote that I have. It's, work harder and harder, and soon busyness becomes an emblem of prestige. And that really rang through, through to me because people would be like, oh, Sean, you're so busy. And I'm like, yeah. But what, I, <laughs> but what I realized is I was just distracting myself from feeling feelings. Uh, I just wasn't. I, you know, right. I, my busyness wasn't aligned with what I wanted to. I was in, you know, corporate roles that maybe I wouldn't have designed if I took a second to just 
calm down and think about what I want. But my, so my question is, is that, like I said, your, your book really gave me words to an issue that I was completely entrenched with is this distraction. And I had previously read so many books on, Hey, your time is finite time management, do this, eat the frog first. Yet the business always consumed me. So for you, I know you have this belief that time management, as we know, it has failed, failed miserably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you explain why you feel like we need to stop pretending otherwise and how distractions play a role? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're getting at really, you know, you talk about uh, there about very, and I can connect to this completely, you know, this idea of like, what is it? The busyness, like is one of the questions is like, what are you running from when you mm. make yourself so busy? And I do think it's important to say like, on some level, we all are doing this. Not everyone turns to busyness, but this is a sort of a, this is a sort of view of human psychology that I guess has its roots in like old school psychoanalysis, really. And this is this idea that like a heck of a lot of what we do in our lives is actually um, an attempt to sort of not feel certain feelings that we think would be absolutely terrible to feel. And certainly my history with busyness is that the, yeah, you, you are feeling, it feels like you're justifying your existence. It feels like you're... Um, you know, you don't have to worry about certain kinds of uh, uh, sort of not being accepted or being rejected or not being adequate because, look, you're like putting out all this effort and you've got a finger in a million a million pies. Um, and then I think distraction, I mean, I try to distra- define distraction in the broadest sense possible so that, it, yeah, it's totally like you go and check Twitter when you're meant to be working on a piece of writing or something, just to give you a personal example <laughs> but it's um but it's also like you know i think a whole a whole career could be a distraction in a sense if if um if you know that it's not what is right for you but that the reason you're doing it is to sort of make some feeling go away and in careers a good example especially younger adults a good example of the feeling that they want to avoid is that their parents might disapprove right you see people pursuing careers for years that they want that they don't particularly want to pursue because they because they're sort of following a parental agenda that's just one example of of many and so again when i'm talking in the book about distraction i'm talking about how like when you do get distracted by facebook or um web surfing it is partly that silicon valley has all sorts of very evil technologies for distracting you that is real and i don't want to um soft soap that but you also kind of you sort of we collaborate right we don't we 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 go along with it and certainly in my experience when i'm writing something hard and i'm distracted is it's kind of a relief right mm. you 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 kind of like oh it's kind of uncomfortable to stretch yourself to do this important stuff and it's like oh it's like a warm bath to just go and like look at everyone being angry with each other or making stupid jokes on twitter um so this all sort of goes to the heart of what I'm saying because I think that like it's not a coincidence that the stuff that really matters to us to do in life is a bit uncomfortable. I don't mean like no pain, no gain. You've got to like your whole day has got to be a sort of fight or something. But when you're doing the stuff that you care about or committing more deeply to relationships that you care about or whatever it might be, like, yeah, it's going to feel a little bit like un- uncomfortable. Mm. And so we need to sort of be a little aware of how so much of distraction and busyness are ways to sort of numb that 
discomfort. Um, and there's one, I don't quote it in the book, but there's a Buddhist uh, meditation teacher I know called Susan Piver who says something very um, sort of paradoxical sounding, but that has always stayed with me, which is that busyness is a form of laziness. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think what she means by that is that, like, it's sort of the easy way out mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense. And sometimes not committing to too many things and focusing on just doing the handful of things that you know you really care about the most uh, and therefore being less busy is actually the sort of high effort approach and the sort of um, the approach that takes guts, I guess. I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. It perfectly. And that, that, as you said that quote, it just like, I felt it throughout my body. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's, it's, it's great. And you know, I, I use this, even this podcast as, as an example. Um, I've wanted to do a podcast where we discuss the relationship with money for years. And um, I was too busy. I never did mm-hmm. it. And fortunately, I signed up for a, a postgraduate degree in financial psychology and we had to do something like huh, a project. Right. So it was like coined in my busyness. I'm like, oh, I can do it. So I kind of snuck that one yeah. in, but it was hard because I wanted to do it. And it was easier to just pack my day with things that actually didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you, you use this term, which I really like is pain for distractions with your life. And I want to go yeah. on the career side that you, you, you brought up because I work with people with their money and money to me acts such a big distraction, especially like when you look at the way our system, our societal system with careers and project like career projections work, it's, there's this unwritten script that at least around me, I see that it's like, go to school, graduate, get a good job, chase a promotion, work like arguably the best 40 hours of your week to a company that, um, takes that time from you. Mm-hmm. And, and then we do whatever we can to chase those promotions. And often we don't like our, our, maybe we don't, we're not always fond of our boss or the company, but yet we just endure this. And then we try to post it on social media to distract us that, Hey, look at this. I made it. I bought a mm-hmm. boat or a new car and sure I'm embellishing a bit, but I feel like there's some truth in that. And what you talk about in the book also about so these two things here, distraction, you're paying it with your life, but what you pay attention to defines your re- what your reality is. And I like that idea when I look at money, because often we talk about this idea of retirement. We want to wait till we're 65 to push this cognitive happiness to the total mm-hmm. 65. But to your point, what we pay attention to defines us. So every day we're paying attention to this, this script of go to work get a promotion, do these things that we don't really like. Let's endure until we get there. Mm-hmm. So my question is this idea of time and putting it off into what you said earlier, we'd never ever get that actual control we're looking for. Right. What is your perspective on how as a collective group, all of us we're paying for distractions with our time when it comes to this idea of the pursuit of retirement or this pursuit of money, knowing we do need money to function, but like delaying our happiness until some point in time, which may not come. Yeah, no, I think it's a really, it's a really good question. I, I, um, the idea that you're paying with your life when you get distracted is just that like, yeah, for each of us, what our life is, is the sum total of all the things we pay attention to. Um, and so, uh, you really are sort of giving away your life. If you give away parts of it to things that you 
didn't mean to give attention to. We'll do that. I don't want people listening to sort of beat themselves up and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have perfect relentless focus because we all fail. But it's just a question of becoming a bit more conscious of that. I think when you're talking about the money, I think this is this really this really connects to me with this idea of instrumentalizing time, right? This idea that we use time we use time for purposes in the future. And we all have to do that. You couldn't live if you never did that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're recording this now so that you can put out this podcast so that I can mm-hmm. spread the word about my book. It's not just for the pleasure of the conversation, but what, although it's a pleasurable conversation, although, but but what has happened, I think, is that we have totally over-invested in that future perspective to the extent that we don't really derive any value from the present moment. We're always thinking, what's it all for? And money and earning money and making money is is the sort of epitome of that because we live in a because it's sort of inherent to uh how capitalism works that that it's a it's a sort of giant machine for instrumentalizing time for profit and so i think that the the thing i'm trying to get out of here is like i'm not particularly someone who thinks don't chase money because money will make you isn't the source of happiness i think it's true on some level that being incredibly rich is not the key to happiness. But in a way, I don't care what people's different values are within a certain range anyway. Um, And I don't think that sort of wanting to be wealthy is a problem. I think the problem, the sort of fundamental problem is whatever you're doing, if you're doing it all for the future, Mm. then you're not really living. And to give a sort of counterexample, you could be someone who thought that money was absolutely unnecessary and all you wanted to do was achieve spiritual enlightenment and be a Zen master and spend all your days uh, like meditating 10 hours a day or something, right? That person too, if they're only doing it all for the future, is still missing out on life. And that's someone who doesn't, you know, so I don't think there's anything, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that idea that some people have that like, oh, money's kind of dirty. You shouldn't want that. You should want something else. It's just like, whatever you're doing, and hopefully it will be lucrative because it's important to have money, but whatever you're doing, um, it, it has to have some value in the present to you because otherwise it's always going to be postponing that value to a time that, that never arrives. And retirement, as you mentioned, obviously, is a really good example of this. There's nothing wrong with a life that's structured by, first of all, working and then taking mm-hmm. it easier. But if you think that retirement is when you're going to do all the things that your mm-hmm. life was always about, uh, that's a dangerous, a dangerous way to set up the, the value of your life, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like that. I really, really liked how you keyed in on whether it's being a, um, a Zen master or money, the underlying root is not living in the present and pushing that right. to the future. And I agree. Some people make a lot of money right now, but they're, they're doing something they really, really like. And hey, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's understanding that idea of, am I deriving, to use your words, value from the present moment that I think we miss? And I, I've talked to people about retirement. I'm like, uh, what do you want in retirement? Well, I want to have this much money. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, but like, what... It, what do you want? Explain a day. They'd be like, I want to wake up without an alarm clock, but it'll still probably be early. They'll say, and I want to go to the gym or exercise, mm-hmm. go for a walk, have a coffee, do something meaningful. I don't want to sit around and play Sudoku. So maybe volunteer mm-hmm. part-time work that I like, hang out with some friends and do some traveling. 
And to your point, like that's not that difficult to do now just for right, many right, people. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, or at least a little bit, you know, a little bit. At yeah. Least, at least for an hour or two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Um, and I think what that speaks to is, well, anyway, I'll let you go. No, no, go, go. Well, I was just going to say one of the things that connects to in terms of money, um, one of the more direct parallels, maybe you were going to ask about this, but is, um, I sort of explore in the book at one point, the idea of what happens if you, if you translate the principle of paying yourself first Mm. from, from money to time. So, uh, you don't need me to tell you this, but obviously that sort of, that idea in, finances in personal finances is that like uh, you should sort of put some money into savings or investments as soon as you get it and then spend on all the things you have to spend on rather than uh doing all your expenditures and hoping that you'll have some left over at the end and unless you're like living on the poverty line and of course some people are but if, unless you are if you take a certain chunk out of your money at the moment you receive it you sort of never miss that money that you sort of adapt and, and you still feel like you can buy all the groceries you need and la la la. And the creativity coach who I write about in a book called Jessica Abel makes this very, very wise point. I think that um, it's the same with time that, uh, you know, if you, if you sort of spend all your time doing all the things that you, that you sort of have to do in a day, but you hope that at the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the month, you're going to have some left over to focus on the thing you really care about you're probably going to be disappointed because um, work expands to fill the time available. Uh, the parallel would be that, you know, um, you live up to your means with money. If you, if you, um, if you have a certain amount to spend, you spend it um, unless you really are very self-disciplined. So th- what comes from this is the insight that like, you know, on a given day, or you could think about it on the, on the scale of a year or something, or just in life, right? If there's something you've always wanted to do that there's, something very powerful to be said for doing a little bit of it like today Hmm. um instead of instead of putting it off to this time when you hope you'll 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 get a time um i think it was barbara sher the career coach who said that like um uh you know if you want to be a screenwriter you've got two choices you can sort of keep working your regular job until you've made enough money to sort of get up get away from your regular job and take a whole long leave of absence and go to a the beach somewhere and write a screenplay um or you can like do one hour today and then you're a screenwriter like by definition not a successful one yet Mm -hmm. but um you know you're already doing it and you're doing the thing that you know counts the most for you so i think it's a that's a useful reminder that like these these future times firstly they don't always come at all like who knows which one of us will make it to retirement age and then secondly even if they do if you're still in that mindset of thinking about the future you're never going to come back to like okay here i am so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering the exact example where you talk about, oh, the airplane. You reminded me of the airplane. It's like you could go plan to be a, go on time for the airplane, but you get there and you made it. The airplane's not going to take off, but now your brain's already focusing on the next thing that it's yeah, got to plan right, for. Right. So yeah. I really like this idea of like, just implementing a little bit of the things that you like now because mm-hmm. we've got that present time. Yeah. The thing about the future is it's always in the future. I mean, that's, it's, it sounds so silly to say it, but it's like, um, we're so, we're so bewitched by this idea that if we plan for the future, then we'll get there. We'll be like, ah, now it's the yeah. future. 
but it never is the future. That's always in the future. So that's it, it's just wild <laughs> to think that way. Right, right. Yes, it begins. You begin to sound like a stoner, to be honest, if you talk too much about uh, about this. But it's, uh, but, <laughs> but it's, it's uh, but it's true. Right. It's yeah, so true. true. Yeah. How many of us, whether it's money or fitness level eating, it's like when I do this, I'm going to feel good. Mm-hmm. But there's the next. To use your example from the book, there's the next train to catch or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I really like that idea of paying yourself first with time. Um, and yeah, of course it has great, great, um, resemblance to things we talked about. You said paying yourself first. And in speaking of pain, you do talk about, um, how we get paid can impact our perspective of time or how we view our time. And in preparing for the conversation, I I was reading a research paper that fit very well with your theme on this. And the the paper showed how organizations compensation, how they compensate their employees have such a powerful influence on how people spend their non-working times and also their psychological, the psychological self-valuations on how they spend their free time. So in the book, you talk a lot about billable hours. So yeah. can you explain how at times maybe <laughs> billable hours or pay per, per hour can make us miserable? And what does this tell us about our, how we think about time and our money? Yeah, this was so interesting to me to sort of discover in writing the book. Cause I obviously, I knew a bit about the sort of, you know, we all have some experience of how our time gets commodified in the modern world. And we feel like, you know, if, if I waste an hour in the middle of the day, it's not, certainly if you're a freelancer like I am, you know, you, you sort of are on some level, you're wasting money because you could have used that to do something that would earn you money. Um, the billable hour, which as your listeners will know, is, you know, fundamental way to how a lot of lawyers especially are are paid, really brings the explicit focus onto this idea that time is is money in a, in a direct sense. And I, I, I draw on the work in the book of a of a legal scholar called Kathleen Kaveny, who sort of explains how, what this does to your view of time, right? Because it, it makes you sort of, it, 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 it turns your job into an opportunity to sort of parcel yourself out into little mm. pockets of time and sell them to clients. So one problem that I think is very well known in the legal world is that uh, it does not provide a good incentive for doing things as efficiently as possible because you want to bill as many hours as you can <laughs> to the client rather than get the job done as fast as possible. But she also points out it has this effect where um, you come to value what you're spending time on by the question of, is it... Um, uh, you know, are you are you using it for? Is it billable? Is it a billable purpose? Um, so she makes this great point that, like a corporate lawyer who uh, feels too busy to show up to, I don't know, his daughter's dance recital, whatever, might not actually be too busy in the sense that the to do list is too long that day, but just in the sense that, like, he's stopped being able to see the value in in time that you can't bill. Um, that's an extreme case. I'm sure it's not true of most corporate lawyers, but but like you, you see the ethos that's creeping in here. This mm-hmm. idea that like that that maybe it's not really it's not a good use of time if it can't be if it can't be billed. Um, and that I think is a very uh, it, it's a very unfortunate way to end up living because it's um, it sort of hollows out the experience of life. And I think she suggests, and I suggest in the book that you know, 
this may be one explanation for why corporate lawyers especially are are so frequently um dissatisfied in their jobs it, it's mm. not the lack of money in corporate law um but it but it may be this sense that like that that you that, that something is being lost in the way that you're valuing your the whole of your time and that it's kind of a waste if you're not uh if you can't bill an hour yeah it, it, it when when you had when i read that in your book i i like i said i started looking up just that concept because i thought it was fascinating and it really speaks like framing like in psychology when we have different mm -hmm. frames on how we view things and this is a frame that my my money is time to these people mm -hmm. uh the billable hours and by coincidence i it was very strange but uh i went out to a friend's cottage this weekend and they had a band playing and it was a dad theme night so everyone's supposed to dress like a dad so i thought i could just <laughs> dress like myself but i was gonna I say right yeah what does yeah. a dad look like <laughs> yeah and oddly enough, I, I was speak, I, I just was chatting to this guy and he was, he wasn't a lawyer. He was an accountant, but very, they're not so billable in the sense, but very project based. And like, yep, I have a stack yep. of things I got to focus on. And, uh, he was actually there just for the one night because he had to work late. And so I just got started talking because your, your audio book was fresh in my mind and I was picking <laughs> his brain. And I started asking him just like about I want to ease in on the question of the articling students because those guys work like 70 hours uh, a week and they get paid yep. next to uh, very, very small. I mean, they're getting their education, but I want to introduce lightly the concept of how much lawyers work in their, their perspective of time. And it was interesting. He was like, Oh no, they have to do that. They have to yeah. do that. And we have to do that in tax season. We just have to do that. And he even self-disclosed that, yeah, during tax times, I'm not coming out to things like this. And uh, I can't always be with my kids on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And and I was just interested. I'm like, and what do you, I didn't want to get too much into it, but I was just curious. I'm like, what happens if you guys just got paid salary? Would would that change how much you work? He's like, oh, and he didn't really give a good answer, but I, I didn't want to pry too much because it wasn't yeah. my place to be. Sure. But it was just fascinating to hear. Yeah, like it was totally fine to be missing the weekend activities with his kids, like he said. Well, it is seasonal for accountants, at least, I suppose. Yeah. There, there is yeah. like a part of the year. I have wondered this in the past. Like, I feel like I'm, I feel very bad for like the guy who does my taxes. I like, I'm leaving it to the last minute every year, like everyone, <laughs> and it must be absolute hell. And I wonder, like, I feel like, I feel like he should offer people discounts if they're, if they're, if they can get it out on time so that his time use is more steadily spread. But those are classic examples of like, whole worlds that are dictated by calendars and um and yeah i mean if you're going to make it work as a as a career you may have to sort of just give in to that way of thinking about time it may you know i'm sure you can't work as a corporate lawyer in most places and just refuse <laughs> to no, think about yeah. bill billable hours so it's not all you know we can't fight all this on an individual level i don't think mm -hmm. And I need to admit, like the accountant I use, he's a wonderful guy. That's not the guy I was talking to. And accountants <laughs> are, are great people. It's just, it's, you can't help but be influenced by your environment on how you perceive things when you're in those billable like environments. So it's just, yeah. it's fascinating to me. Um, and something I did want to talk to you about, because you did talk about your prior book, which there's some, I think some underlying correlations. I mean, the same author. So obviously there's going to be some... <laughs> Yep. residue so this question now is going to be around time money and happiness and um there's the a book by a guy named james adam who actually coined this idea of the american dream 
It was like a 1931 best-selling okay. book called right. Epic America. And in that book, he described the dream of a land which life is better and richer for everyone with the opportunity for each according to their abilities and achievement. So like on the surface, I feel like it's, it was a good intention. However, we fast forward uh, over 90 years later, you live in uh, uh, New York, I believe it right now from England, but uh, we see that today we're busier than ever before, or we're basically time starved. And then when we look at the money side, um, Dollar for dollar, we have access, and I know not everybody does, and that's another systemic issue, is that not everyone has access to the same amount of wealth. But we have more wealth than ever mm-hmm. before. But yet, research is showing that we're literally killing ourselves. And I use that word p- properly, like killing ourselves at work with heart attacks, stress, and so forth. Working long hours for companies that maybe don't treat us well. And again, I understand some cases, we don't have the option to go to other companies, and, yeah, I, and yeah. I understand that. But from the happiness side, uh, there's been extensive research on subjective levels of happiness and psychological happiness that we've relatively stayed the same levels of happiness for over 50 years, despite yeah. large increases of countries' wealth, time management tools. <laughs> yeah. What do you think is happening here when we look at stuff that you've written about is happiness, mm-hmm. time? Is it the distraction we talked about? Do you have any insight to our perspective on what you feel yeah. on your journeys creating this? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think a couple of things are going on. It's really true. Um, I think a couple of things are going on. One is, um, uh, one is this phenomenon, well-known phenomenon called hedonic adaptation or the happiness treadmill, which is how brilliant we are at um, taking any new thing that we have in life uh, and just turning it into the backdrop of our lives so the example i've given in the past is you know i used to drink um i I used to drink like bad coffee and then i started drinking like really good coffee and grinding it for myself and not roasting it for myself but you know what i mean (laughs) and um and then very soon that's just like that's your baseline coffee and it's unimaginable to think that you could go back so again you know this thing that was amazing and wonderful becomes nothing and i think that happens on a societal level too i mean Along with that wealth has been amazing decreases in things like child mortality, um, mm-hmm. amazing, actually globally, a really important, very big decrease in sort of absolute poverty. Um, but, you know, uh, the fact that um, by and large we have uh, sort of running water, clean running water in the West and not not even uniformly in the United States, but basically um, that just becomes like, the backdrop of life, right? It's not something to sort of feel grateful for and value. So in the same way, I think, you know, the consumerism causes us to have access to all sorts of new things. We have the wealth to buy them with, uh, but that is no longer some new form of happiness because we just sort of revert to the to the baseline. And then the other thing is how much of this is, um, is about social comparison, how much of this is really about where you are in a, in a pecking order um, and the sense that people one thing that drives people to to try to make a lot of money is to is to sort of distinguish themselves among their um peers nothing shameful about that i think is this pretty much hardwired into us to want to to want to do that but it does lead to this problem where like um if the if 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 wealth on in on average is growing you're going to have to you know that the the, mm. the the desire to distinguish yourself doesn't 
go away. And then you can occasionally see the same effect in funny contexts where like, you know, people who have people who are wealthy and always get to travel first class on airplanes suddenly get so wealthy that they have a private plane and then they're miserable because it's not a very good private plane compared to the new group of peers that they're referring to, which is like, you know, they, 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 I say in the book, you know, like you, uh, you, we're based on sort of keeping up with the Joneses in the, I don't know if that idiom travels beyond the UK, but you know, we're always yeah. trying to keep up with keep other people. And then if, and then if you, um, if you manage it, you just nominate a new Jones to try to keep up with. So you'll never, you never get there unless you are literally um, Jeff Bezos, and then you need to like go into space or something. To, and, and maybe he's to. never there because there's going to be another <laughs> right, plant. right, right, right. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that adaptation is just incredible. Um, like how much we adapt, and I, I'm glad you point out both the extreme poverty. We actually had a. Um, James Audison on, he's a philosopher and economist, and he really drew that parallel of globally, our, our extreme poverty has been re- reduced to yep. not where obviously where we want it to be, but it's, we've been improving. Yep. And, and his, he's a, he, he talks a lot about the morality of money. And I, I, I think there's something to be said about like if, if wealth is increasing so much and we adapt so much to this wealth, maybe we just, the system, we need to be spreading this wealth out more. So we're just all happier and we're not just adapting to the first class, our own private planes, because it's really a waste of money. Now that was very much of an opinion of mine. So uh, I'm going to go back to, to your book here because uh, um, this reminds me of this adaptation of something you talk about in the book, but maybe there's not so much adaptation when you frame it this way. And that's how you value hiking. Can you talk <laughs> about the significance of hiking? And it, it made me think of it because I like the, the reason why you go on hikes, because it, it might not adapt because you're not, I, from what I understand, you're not doing the world's record time on a hike. That's not your goal. <laughs> so can you right. explain yeah. why you like to take hikes? Sure. I mean, this is just my personal example of a principle I'm trying to explore in the book that um, there's something really important about doing certain activities in life, making time for certain activities in life that are an end in themselves, that don't have some reason why you're doing it other than the experience of doing it. Um, And Hiking is a good example of this. I quote a philosopher, Kieran Setia, who defines these as atelic activities. So it, it comes from the word telos. Um, uh, telic activities that you do for an end point that they're leading towards, and atelic ones you, you don't. Um, obviously, there are benefits, side benefits to going hiking. It's healthy to be in the fresh air and to, uh, and to exert yourself. But that's not usually why people do hiking. If that was your sole... Uh, desire you could go for a quick run or something and uh, save time um and also you can't really sort of make them more efficient without eliminating the point of doing them and that's very obvious in a hike where like what happens in a hike is you either start from a certain place where you parked your car or whatever and go in a big loop back to that place or you go as far as a certain point and then you turn around and come back in both cases if you wanted to be efficient you would just not go on the hike in the first place (laughs) um so it, it really draws attention to the idea that that this is something that, and again, it's just my example of this activity. There are lots and lots of others we could talk about um, that you just do for itself alone. 
And I think it's really important to find space in life for some things that you do for themselves alone, because otherwise, yes, everything in the society, the economy and everyone else will push you in the direction of, of focusing on things for, for future, for future purposes. Mm. Yeah, I just love that idea of do it for the, like doing it for the self of, on its own. And not for that future orientated. And uh, I mean, it resonates with me because I'm a guy who always thought like, I got a plan for the future, did this. I'm like, yeah, wait a second. Doing things like the present moment is what we have. And that that hike really, really resonated with me because I'm a guy who trains for runs. And the goal is originally was to focus on getting a certain time. But really, I'm starting to realize, and, and your book is really helping with that, is that it's the 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 act of doing that I feel like enriches my life, at least from my experience. Mm-hmm. And I had an interesting experience, actually. I, I decided when my second kid, my daughter, was born in the hospital, I signed up for a full Ironman race to totally <laughs> distract myself. Now I realize <laughs> right. <laughs> from, from this idea of like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, not be able to have fitness and this and that. So I trained all yeah. year. I get down to the race in Louisville, Kentucky, and... Sure enough, the swims canceled because of uh, blue-green algae. And I was just like, no, like I can't do this. Like I'm not going to be an Ironman. And um, the, the bike and run were long enough on its own. But what I actually learned was that like the race itself, I had attached so much of my year identity on training to that race. Mm-hmm. But it really didn't matter because I looked back and like I had told myself that I wouldn't work past five o'clock to be home with my kids and not to let this time really consume myself. Yeah. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons, which also are very ego driven, which I understand now, but I learned that the, 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 just the journey was so much more important than that end goal. But when I came across the hiking section, it just spoke even more to me that it doesn't have to be this iron man. Cause that's just the, that's just the, I, I'm distraction for me, at least of what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, yeah, I think it's totally, first of all, I think it's totally fine to have some goals like that in your recreational life. And secondly, I think like goals in general, we just can't choose not to have. Right. So, so we're always wanting to do things for some future reason to some extent. I just think, you know, it's very possible to end up with a life that has no uh, space for doing mm. something mm-hmm. that you're, you're doing for itself alone so obviously you know in my work life i'm trying to get better and be successful and of course i am but the great thing about something like hiking is that's that time out from that way of of being so i think it's useful to mm-hmm. know, it's useful to have something like that in your life yeah and, and i 100 i agree goals give us meaning something to strive for growth I, what, what spoke to me, and I think your book hits people personally in different ways is just to what we talked about earlier is not to live too much on that future goal and be set on the outcome that we're desiring from that goal. That's what really spoke to me is like taking more hikes, whatever my hike would be is just doing it for the sake of doing it. Right. Uh, And you can, like, you can train for an Ironman and take pleasure in the doing of the training. I think it's harder and so in a way, I'm making it easy for myself on a hike because I'm not trying to get better at anything. Um, but, but you can, and sort of like the, the elite level of this skill would be obviously to, to train for something that was worth having and yet to find the individual moments of that mm-hmm. training to be, uh, to be uh, fulfilling in, a, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I find that difficult, which is why I go for something that just 
is puts that to one side, you know. But, uh, yeah. Um, so as we come to an end here, um, I want to, I have a final question I ask everybody, but mm-hmm. in terms of goals, like your book's just circulating through my mind right now. Can you give a quick, I guess, overview on your perspective of this analogy we all talk about, the rock, sand, and pebbles? And, and where the correlation coming here is that the big rocks are our goals. And for, for yeah, let's, let's leave it that. It was your perspective yep. on how is this sand, pebble, rocks maybe misleading or how, what explanation do you feel it needs more? I'm, I'm very rude about the sand pebble rocks thing in my, in That's my okay. book. I'll just say it. But, um, and, you know, I think it is in its original form, it was fairly well meant. So I don't mean to beat up on Stephen Covey or anything like that. But um, this idea that um, and your listeners will know that the parable, I don't need to labor the point, but this idea that like the way to find time for everything is to put in the big rocks first into your schedule, make sure you do the things that matter and then you can find time for all the other stuff around the edges. If you just fill your life with all the pebbles and sand, you won't find time. You won't find space for the big rocks. Um, and my point is, like, this whole thing is rigged because the guy doing the demonstration in the story only has it. He knows there are only enough rocks that will fit in the jar. The really important point in our society today, certainly, is that there are too many big rocks. Mm-hmm. And you're not just going to have to choose to say no to a few things that you don't really care about. You're probably going to have to say no to some things that you really do care about in order to make time and give proper focus to some of the others. So um, again, I think at least to the way it has been used, the sand pebble rocks thing is a sort of subtle way of implying if you have the right methods, if you have the right techniques, you can do everything. You never need to make a difficult choice. You just need to have the right, uh, configuration. And I think, you know, my whole message in this book is actually, no, you do need to make tough choices. You mm. can't do everything. You can't even do everything that matters. But here's the thing, because that's inevitable, it's actually quite liberating because you don't have to beat yourself up for not having become a perfectly optimized person in the same way that, you know, you don't beat yourself up for not being able to jump three miles in the air. It's, just, it's not on the cards, so it doesn't bother <laughs> us. Um, and so in the same way, I think if we can sort of drop that impossible quest, it's a lot easier to make those tough choices because you just see that everyone's making them. Some of, some, some of us are doing it unconsciously and some of us hopefully are doing it a little bit more consciously, but we all have to do it. So um, I, I think that's a big sort of I find that quite inspiring and motivating and empowering rather than a kind of recipe for despair or anything Mm. because, um, yeah, uh, you can definitely think of more cool things to do with your life than you'll get a chance to do. And you can definitely receive more emails in your inbox than it makes sense to try to stay on top of. And you can definitely feel more pressure from various family members to do or be certain things than you'll ever be able to fulfill. So it's just a question of which which balls do you want to drop, and I think that's actually quite quite liberating when you think about it that way. You know, I I felt really liberated when you said that in your book about it's okay to drop these balls, and the way you explain it, I, I just find it um, so insightful. And you use the word motivating, but I find that like people use that rock pebble the sand analogy to motivate people like a most mm-hmm. motivational speaker style yep. and I, I find from experience that 
sometimes motivational speakers are using the rock pebble example in the traditional sense can actually create elements of shame to some degree where you're like, right, what's right. wrong with me? And especially motivational speakers at some point that get up there, this is how you do it. Da, 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 and then you go in real life and you realize I can't hold all these balls and what's wrong with me. Where yep. I really, Oliver, I find in your writing, you, you liberate people to drop the balls and, <laughs> and I guess challenge people to be reflective, to really think about what balls or rocks they want to yep. have in their jar. And I really, I guess, applaud you for that in your book and your writing. Cause for me personally, it means a lot because a guy who always evaluated himself on having a lot of rocks in that jar to, to hear that it's okay to have two, yeah. one, whatever. No, I th- I'm really grateful you say that because that is exactly what I hope I'm, I'm conveying. So I'm flattered. I mean, I think it's just like the view of life that we're talking about here is a challenge and it isn't always comfortable and it is, can be tough, but it's not, logically impossible that's the mm. problem with the other one that's the problem with the other one mm-hmm. that the attempting to do everything so it's like yeah take some guts but you can do it whereas the one way you have to try to become infinitely capable nobody can do so like let's drop that yeah well the people emailing me are wondering what happened but i'm just taking your advice in the book where i'm just not answering them so thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> um so i see the time here i want to be respectful of your time my last question i've asked everybody is and I change it up depending on people's backgrounds, but say you are in back in the United Kingdom or in New York or wherever you want in the world, you're 95 mm-hmm. years old, assuming that's still, all right, 80, <laughs> we'll use that as life expectancy for your book. You're four, you're at week 3,999. Right. And uh, your task. Which doesn't mean you're going to die next week, by no, the way. Okay. If, any, if anyone is listening to it in their 80s, yeah. I don't, I don't want to take it alone. <laughs> that's true. So whatever week you're at, um, yep. you're near the end. Uh, you're tasked with this this project or this assignment or this internal idea to write a letter to your children's children on what you felt was a good relationship with time and money. What would you? What would the essence of that letter be? Um. Wow, that's a big a big question. Um, and I guess I'm thinking naturally more about time than money but I, it would be it would be something about like i mean it would be similar to what i just said i'm afraid in a way which is like this is real you have to take responsibility and it matters but you can do it and you don't need to worry about whether you can do it so like you need to step up to life in a certain way when it comes to these things but not in a way that you need to like beat yourself up about or feel constantly anxious about. You just need to do, like you have the resources, the inner resources uh, to do this. So, you know, it, it, it matters and it's really, you need to take it seriously, but, but you can, I think that's, I think that's sort of what I'm trying to get at through all of this stuff. Well, you do certainly get that message across in your books. So thank you so much for joining me today, Oliver. I really appreciate your time and insights. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for your questions. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Oliver Berkman. I really, really enjoyed his perspective and in his insights on our 4,000 weeks. I really suggest that you get a copy of this book. It's really helped me to frame time in a different perspective. The fact that, yeah, we do have 4,000 weeks. However, when I say do, 
it's not a guarantee. All we have is the week, the day that we're currently living in. Often, as we talk throughout the conversation, we spend so much time planning and worrying for the future and forget to just start taking our hike, so to speak, right now. Thank you. Until next time, have a great week.